This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Today we look ahead to Groups E and F in Qatar 2022. Spain v Germany, probably the tie of the group stages. We have Sid Lowe and Archie Wintat to tell us if either of them are good. Gavi and Pedri is a pint-sized midfield of fun, but again, how heavy will the shirt weigh on whoever they put up front? Will Jamal Musiala be the breakout, already broken-out player for Germany? Mario Goetze returns. What's he ever done at a World Cup? Beyond them, what hope for Japan or Costa Rica? And then Group F, Belgium's goal Golden generation must be rusting a little. Can gold rust? I don't own a lot of it. Are the Croatians tired? And how excited should we be about Canada? Meanwhile, what can Hakimi Ziyech and your Bufal do for Morocco? Also today, in the third of our specials, we focus on migrant workers, their conditions, their lives, and the fight for compensation from FIFA. All that plus your questions, and that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel for the duration today, Lars Sivertson, welcome. Hello, Max. Hello, John Bruin. Hello, Max. And joining us for Group E cameos, Sid Lowe, hello. Hello. And Archie Rintat, welcome. Hello. Uh, Tommy says, which of Spain or Germany is crashing out in the group stage? Uh, Sid, why, why don't we start with Spain? Um, are they good? Tell us all about them. I don't know if they're good. I think they are, but I think they might not be. Um, you, you look at their Euros, <laughs> their, their European Championships kind of tells you everything you need to know about Spain in a way. A team that were the best team in the group, certainly in terms of how much of the ball they had, the number of chances they created, the sense just of a, of a team kind of in control, but were very, very close to not getting through the group stage. They struggled to score goals, struggled to take the chances, and you think they, they might not get through. They then go to Copenhagen against Croatia, and they need extra time to win, but they eventually win a, an extraordinary game. You think, okay, maybe now it starts. And by the way, it's worth pointing this out. That win against Croatia was the first time in three tournaments, well, in four tournaments, they'd been three in a row where they hadn't won a single knockout game. So they finally won a knockout game. They get into the next round and they get Switzerland. You think, well, that's a nice draw. They should comfortably get to the final. They need penalties to beat Switzerland. They get to the semi-final. And all of a sudden, of course, the, the, the analysis of this is, this is brilliant. Spain are, Spain are in a semi-final. They're good again. They're back. They're a strong team. 
And they're the better team against Italy. We, you can argue about this. I don't know if everyone agrees. Maybe they don't. But certainly the Spanish view of it is they played better than Italy. They were the better team. And then they lost on penalties. And so you get this kind of sort of overall perspective of Spain from the European Championships as, are they good or not? We're not really sure. And we've seen this, I think, a little bit in the Europa League, uh, sorry, the Nations League games, uh, in the qualification games for uh, for the next Euros, in the way they've come into this World Cup. This team that, that dominates possession, sometimes plays really well, but has needed late goals or has struggled to beat teams like Greece, for example, uh, not particularly good against Kosovo. Uh, saw them recently against, uh, was it Switzerland? I think it was in, in Thadagotha and they again weren't very good. And so I kind of look at them and think, yeah, they could be, but we sort of don't know if they are or not. In my, my sort of image of Spain over the last few years is a kind of sad-looking Alvaro Morata after he's missed a chance. Yeah, and Morata is... I, I, sort of, I always feel with Morata that he's this guy on a kind of a permanent search for happiness that's always just out of reach. And in fairness to him, like a lot of people, as you say, you've just said sad-looking. I think part of it is just kind of the way he looks. But, but he is a player who, who I think has externalised quite often the idea of pressure, the idea that people are not necessarily on his side, the idea that things just kind of don't quite fall for him. And yet he still scores more goals than most players in the Spain team. I think I think he was Spain's top scorer at the last tournament. Of course, he's the one that scores against Italy in the semi-final. But it's also a tournament in which he found himself whistled by his own fans, in which he found Luis Enrique having to come out or, or feeling like he had to come out and really defend him and you know make a big point of, of backing him. But he gives Spain something that Nava forwards give them. And in particular, if you look at the squad that they've got, he's the only actual number nine in the team, the only one in the, even in the squad. Um, so I think it'd be really important. But you're right, him as a kind of the embodiment of, yeah, but, is is, is quite a good portrait of, of Spain. Sid, uh, I noticed Tiago isn't going. Hmm. Um, I'm glad you noticed, Archie, because no one in Spain seems to have noticed. It, 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 seems, <laughs> it seems a bit strange from, from where I'm looking. Uh, what's, what's the deal? I, I can find some ingredients for you rather than give you a, an, an answer as to why this has happened. I, I think one of them is that this is very much Luis Enrique's team and, and he has players that he, he believes in and he has a very, very clear sense of how he wants his team to play, even if the players that he chooses to do that kind of shifts quite a lot. You know, and quite often his starting eleven surprises you. There's always at least a couple of players in it that you weren't necessarily expecting. But I think the beginnings of an idea, or maybe not the beginnings, but an idea at least is is very clear. It's an idea that in theory, Thiago fits. I, I don't know if maybe there's a personality thing that, that doesn't, in that he's tended to like um, players that he feels are his, if you see what I mean. Players that he feels do exactly the play, exactly the way that he wants to. Thiago, I think he will feel as well is a player that's had a lot of injury problems and he hasn't always had the continuity with Thiago that he would like and that he takes his decisions. And it's interesting. I think it's kind of a quite a nice conceptual way of looking at a national team. Luis Enrique, and someone said this to me on Twitter once, and, and I apologise because I'm now robbing their idea without giving them credit for it because I can't remember who it was. Luis Enrique is a manager that doesn't see the national team as a reward for what you've done at your club. The national team is a team that he is constructing. And he has said it himself. I, if, if I'm in doubt... I will take my decision based on what they've demonstrated to me here, not what they've done at their clubs. This is what matters to me. And so I just wonder if maybe he has a feeling that Thiago has never quite been as important for him as he was like, would like through a combination of injuries and so on. That maybe one of the things that's lovely about watching Thiago is, is as much kind of stylistic or aesthetic as it is effective. Uh, I think that's part of it. Um, I also think if you look at his midfield, he's got players... 
And the emergence of, of, of Gavi obviously doesn't help because that's an extra player to play. I think he's got players that he feels fit a very specific approach and really has only got one or two. I, I would say only one that breaks that, which is maybe Marco Llorente as a player that's slightly different to the Spanish style. And so... I think in a way this this just doesn't feel like a big thing in Spain. Whereas I, I'm with you on this. I, I kind of watch him play. I think how could he not be in there? I mean, to give you an example, I was looking at this the other day. The, the World Soccer Guidebook for the for the Euros. I've got him in my squad, and he didn't make it. So that's that's me looking stupid. I mean, it's selfish of Luis Enrique, isn't it? Because from a Spain team, I want to see Thiago playing beautiful passes. I don't care if they win it or not, but I guess for him, winning it is probably slightly more important. Uh, Lars? So looking at the, the, just looking at the squad, there are two sort of big things that jump up on me as someone who's excited to see them play. One links with Morata a little bit, which is if Morata is this guy who's really valuable to the team and Enrique likes him for all these reasons, but he does miss chances. So you're kind of looking to the wild players a little bit for goals, right? And there's a lot of really good wild players in there, but I'm not sure like which one of them are starting. Like, is it is it Torres? Is it Dani Olmo? Is it Sarabia? Is Fatih playing? Like, who's actually going to line up either side of Murata? And are we going to get the necessary amount of goals from them? I think you'll get a little bit of a combination of of the forward players. And, and you look at this and there is a lot of players who I would, I suppose you could argue, I mean, I, I think you can see differences between them, but I think you can argue that there's there's kind of players cut from a similar mould at the very least. Um, I, he, for example, and Luis Enrique, this is very much a Luis Enrique thing, for example, look at Pablo Sarabia. And he's a player that I think most people uh, in Spain, at least, would say we probably wouldn't notice very much if he wasn't there. But Luis Enrique thinks he would. Um, I think you see, for example, how much he likes Dani Olmo, who, again, is a player that maybe we haven't always thought of as, as a standout star but Olmo certainly is is important I think when you get teams that defend very deep because he can shoot from distance you see quite often his shooting changes things even if he himself doesn't score because maybe it creates a rebound that someone gets onto or maybe just the fact that you've got someone who can shoot from 20-25 metres forces a defence to step out a little bit which opens that little bit of space behind them. The, to answer your question directly about goals the player who's really provided goals for Spain from a wide position is Ferran Torres. And Ferran has got a really, really good goal-scoring record under under Luis Enrique. And of course, famously, including that hat-trick against Germany when they scored six. Um, and so I think Ferran is the one that you look at. And then it's going to be very interesting as well to see what kind of role he has in mind for Ansu Fati. Um, and, and Luis Enrique admitted that he had one doubt in the forward line that ran until the very, very last minute. And he has basically admitted, without actually saying it explicitly, that that doubt was, do I take Borja Iglesias? which I suppose in profile terms is sort of similar to Alvaro Morata. I mean, I don't think he is quite, but, you know, in terms of that, a number nine, who's a number nine, you know, kind of a big guy who, who, who stretches defences, who fights with them, who holds the ball up and so on. Or do I take Ansu, who we all think has something kind of slightly magical about him, uh, an amazing relationship with, with, with scoring goals, even when he's not playing well, somehow he just, he just scores goals and he, he's, creative and he runs at people and he's really exciting but he's come back from an injury and frankly hasn't really had the continuity this year that would suggest that he should get in this squad and in fact Luis Enrique left him out of the last one but I think ultimately he has decided that at least I assume he has decided I, I'm, I'm kind of deciding this for him that this is a player that even if he doesn't play 90 minutes he's a player that more than anyone else you think if he's on the pitch he'll score when I look at the age profile of this squad. There's a lot of young players, I mean, censored around, I suppose, Gavi, Pedri, Ansu, who you mentioned. But then you've got Sergio Busquets. Now, I didn't have any grey hairs when uh, 
Busquets was at his peak, you know, and he, he's a, to me, he doesn't look the same player when I've seen him play, but he's obviously really, really important to Enrique from what I've read, from what I understand. Thinking of this from an English point of view, are the Spanish press, and you can count yourself as part of the Spanish press if you want, Sid, are they are they like the press here in, in England who just demand that you play the kids and throw in all these exciting attacking talents or are they a bit more circumspect about it? No, I think I think the, the debates in Spain and the debates in Spain really are furious debates. You know, it's it's a kind of a very much yeah. a, it's very much a staple of, of of Spanish radio in particular, and and the, the print media a little bit, but certainly radio and 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 of course famously, infamously, a, a particular TV show that I, I prefer not to even mention, frankly. But anyway, the, the the debates here actually focus much more often than than on age on club. Right. So there's this kind of obsession, and this is the nature of, of obviously Spanish football fandom, the, the, the divide that is created by Madrid and Barcelona and how that creates, if you like, the, the parameters for, for, for having these arguments. But it is true that there's a, there's a debate, um, there are other debates kind of beyond that. And one of them is age, um, and there is, I think, uh, an enthusiasm for seeing some of the young players. That also comes with it, naturally enough, I think uh, a concern that because you're going for young players, you do sort of look at this team and say, who's the star? You know, who, who's the kind of the outstanding guy that's demonstrated it, that's the very best. And, and of course, Spain can't help but think of the generation of 2008, 10 and 12. And of course, Busquets is the only one left. You know, although Jordi Alba did play in 2012, I don't think he played in 2010. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so there is still that sort of slight sense of we haven't got that generation anymore. I think there's an enthusiasm for the generation coming through. Specifically in terms of Busquets, I think he's quite interesting. Luis Enrique was asked the other day, a question and the question had a preamble and, and the preamble basically was you know this is Suckable Sketch's last tournament and, and Luis Enrique basically ignored the question that followed and he said well no you're wrong I've been trying to convince Suckable Sketch and I am not joking that he has another World Cup in him Wow. And, we'll, and, and, and the, point wow. That Lewis, the point that Luis Enrique makes, now for what it's worth, I don't think he's got another World Cup in him. Um, <laughs> I don't think he's got another Euros in him, to be honest, but let's see. The point that Luis Enrique makes, which I think is actually really quite a significant one, is that we go back to that idea of him having a very clear sense of how he wants his team to play. He thinks that within that structure, Sergio Busquets is still the best central midfielder around. And he recognises Luis Enrique, and he's, he, he talks very openly, and he's, he's fascinating to listen to because he'll... he'll give you a proper analysis of and, and an explanation of his decisions. He recognises that if you get Busquets turned, he's a problem. You know, if, he, if he's forced to go back towards his own goal, he's a problem. But if you can get the structure and the context around him right and allow Busquets to always play on the front foot to step into the game rather than be forced to turn and have to chase it, he's still really quite good at it. And this is why I think there's no doubt from my point of view that, that Luis Enrique's intention is for Busquets to be the starting central midfielder and the only one. I don't think he'll play two. So I don't think he'll defend him with Rodri alongside him, for example. I think it will be just Busquets as... as um, do you call it a pivot in England? You don't really do, but the Spanish call it as the pivot. That, that, okay, yeah, that, that pivot yeah, position. Pivot. Um, and so I think that, that will happen. I think there is a recognition that he's looked a little leggy at times, but I think Luis Enrique would argue, and I think actually the Euros would show you that he's got a point, that if the context is right, Busquets can still perform. We, we really only have double pivots, not single pivots. Um, it's very true, yeah. Surely a pivot by definition is a single piece, isn't it? Yeah, it can only be a double pivot. Yeah, but if you think of it from a mechanical point of view, right? <laughs> and, and, and we're going to get some mechanic We're going to get some mechanic writing in now calling me a moron and they'll be correct. Yes. But surely from a mechanical point of view, a pivot is a single point. How can it be a double point? Do mechanics mainly focus on pivots? I mean, maybe I don't know how... It, well, it's a mechanical move. thing. I don't know. <laughs> 
Like there was not time for another question, but there was time for pivot chat. What's 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 German for pivot? Piv- pivot, yeah. <laughs> oh, Excellent, yeah. Does pivot? Um. Anyway, look, I want to talk about Germany. I'd like to talk about Goethe are coming back, which is fascinating, Archie. You've got Thomas Muller and Manuel Neuer, who I expect will play in every World Cup for the rest of time, and then you've got Jamal Musiala sort of leading the young the young squad. How balanced do you think it is? So. To attack those chronologically, Mario Goetze's revival is is amazing. Um, that he has come in from PSV Eindhoven to Eintracht Frankfurt and just really settled in so quickly. I think part of it is to do with how he is a center point to the system that they play there. Um, they play actually with generally with two number 10s. So, so the position he's in is almost a 10 and a half, if you will. And just the instinctiveness with which he's playing, how how little he's having to think because he's just making the decisions so quickly uh, by the looks of it um, has been yeah ex- extraordinary. And he is a big reason as to why they have finished the first chunk of the Bundesliga season in, in fourth position. So, yeah, um, that Marco Royce was injured, I think, made this an easier decision to make for, for Hansi Flick. That's a shame in itself because Royce has only gone to one major tournament because of injury. Uh, I think Musiala is the star player of the team right now, even if he is only 19. Uh, he has been the standout player in the Bundesliga this season. More and more, I'm seeing comparisons of his dribbling to the way that a snake moves forward. I think it's one of the first times I continually see some being a snake as being a positive thing in football. Uh, but he, he is really something. He was talking in an interview recently about how he's he's grooved his, his shooting. And you, you can tell that he just goes into a certain zone when he gets the ball in the box. And I, I he's just so calm for somebody his age. And I think part of it with him is that he doesn't look like he should be this this menacing forward. Uh, he's ju- he just looks like quite a sweet boy, um, and yet he's he's <laughs> so good um, and has become, I think, going forward, the first name on the team sheet at Bayern. That's interesting for the Germany setup because it makes you wonder. Well, of those three forwards behind a striker, of Nabri, Muller, Sane, Musiala, which one won't play? Would it potentially be Thomas Muller even, who has been injured pretty much the last month, has gone to the World Cup, is is still recovering now. Um, but that said, Hansi Flick has always made a big play of how he's been the extended arm of him on the pitch and and what he brings to the team in terms of uh, his, his communication and authority. And yeah, I think one most likely to happen, I'd say, would be one of Nabri and Sane to be left out right now. So there's that. And then you've got the you've got the defensive woes of this team uh, because there are no Bayern players who are defenders for this team. Sure, you've got the Bayern goalkeeper, Manuel Neuer, who, um, with a nod to Sid, Marc-Andre Chastegen must be wondering, why was I born at the time I was born? What is this? You've got Nico Schlotterbeck, who has been in really dire form for Borussia Dortmund. Uh, Niklas Zula, who's not been that much better but the most controversial decision of this squad was leaving out Mats Hummels, also a Borussia Dortmund, who I think has been left out. So 
The official explanation, Max, is that because Hansi Flick wants to give young, a younger player a chance and 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 bring in the next generation in Armel Belakocha, I would raise my hand and go, Thomas Muller is 33. Why is he going? And I think the the truth below this is that Mats Hummels would not be the best for squad harmony, if we're putting this diplomatically. His interviews after games, uh, the way that he's able to, between the lines, throw his teammates under the bus continually, I don't think is the sort of thing that Hansi Flick probably wants of this squad. (laughs) And I think that also his relationship with Mario Goetze, um, Goetze, who Hummels called out for going to Bayern uh, when he did, uh, and then Hummels went to Bayern himself. I don't think that that's that, that, that's probably um, in the best of places. And to get the best out of Gertz, I'd probably say, yeah, leave Hummels at home. Um, but the problem that Andy Flick has from the outside is that Hummels has been the most consistent German defender this season. Now, Antonio Rudiger is held up as the, well, at least we have one in-form central defender. But as Sid's furrowed brow right now shows, Sid's like, well, hang on. He, he's not even been first choice at Real Madrid. So I think there's a bit of confusion as to how that's all going to work. Yeah, when, when I've been reading these extensive previews of this tournament and uh, doing my own research by well reading those extensive previews, I found that the, the idea of Kai Havertz as the leading man, as the striker, mm. uh, because obviously Timo Werner is absent, that interests me because when I see him playing the Premier League, he doesn't really fancy playing as a centre-forward to me he's a, he's a high class player uh, and uh, I recall no lesser a footballing prophet than Ralph Ranick describing him as the German Johann Cruyff um, but uh, Johann Cruyff didn't play as the big man up front did he um, and, and, and one further question for actually is that Joshua Kimmich is one of those players that we've always seen as very high class uh, a typical Bayern graduate and yet I see that He's been criticised for not tackling hard enough. What's all that about? Yeah, I, I, look, he, he does have this tendency sometimes to to want a free kick uh, when he 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 is receiving. Sometimes oh, the finest German traditions, the though. most <laughs> a little England that, that, like I would say, yes, the mo- <laughs> the, the lightest uh, shirt shirt pull. I I don't think I don't I don't think his his tackling has has been off. I think sometimes he can be a bit gung ho. Right, um, but that's also what's what's being demanded of him a lot of the time. And uh, in the system that Joshua Kimmich uh, played under Hansi Flick as well, they had this very useful defensive mop uh, scenario, w- which was called Alfonso Davies. Now, as you can see, when the, the the way that Germany have set up, particularly in those England game, in in the England game at Wembley, you saw the amount of times that England were able to counter them and Germany looked pretty helpless. And I think that that is one of the risks that Hansi Flick takes when he plays this way in in terms of pushing up so far. And it remains to be seen what exactly he wants from Kimmich in in that sense. I, I think, sure, he probably could do with being a little bit more defensively minded. Mm. Um, but it's whether... Is that is that what Hansi Flick is demanding of him? Um, I think regarding Kai Havertz, it's a it's an interesting one. There is this this real uh, wanting for a proper number nine in in Germany, and actually you look across this group, 
Um, I think each each country is 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 struggling with having a, yeah. a, a a a recognized you know number nine who scores lots of goals, particularly in Germany when you had a guy called Miroslav Klose who was the the dominant figure before. You have Niklas Füllkrug who has been very good in the Bundesliga this season. I would say the surprise the surprise nomination alongside Yusuf Mukoko. Um, I mean, not so much a surprise when it came to the day it was uh, announced. But if you'd said before the season, Nicholas Fulkrug will go to the World Cup, I would have said probably not. Um, so the question is, will Hansi Flick give game time to Mukoko and Fulkrug, who have zero international appearances as it stands? Or Havertz, who, sure, while you say he may not look comfortable, I, I think that international football has different demands and this is still a guy who has proven that he can perform on the biggest stage of them yeah, all. Yeah, yeah. If you're scoring a winning goal in a Champions League final, you're you're starting for me. I, I think he's the most likely starter up front. He has all the capabilities. Um, I might have mentioned this on the pod before. The only thing he can't do is, uh, is check his phone while he crosses the road because I once nearly ran him over in Cologne uh, on my bike uh, whilst doing that. Uh, Japan and Costa Rica, it looks tricky, Lars, for either of these sides. I'm surprised to read that Furuhashi hasn't been picked for Japan because he looks quite good when he plays for Celtic. I don't know how extensive your knowledge of the Japanese squad is, but now is your opportunity. Well, I would just say, yeah, they've been done by the draw, haven't they? I think they'd be one of those teams I would flag up being the the hipster that I am as, you know, oh, these are actually pretty good. Look at them. Because uh, they have reached, I mean, they have a, you mentioned Furuhashi, but they have quite a lot of players who are playing for good European clubs. I mean, Archie will know a lot of them. Quite a few of them are in Germany. There's some very, very good players in, in this squad. Uh, I particularly enjoy Daichi Kamada for Frankfurt. He's really, really terrific. If he was, uh, I mean, I'm kind of surprised no one, none of the bigger clubs are, are looking at him, but it's nice for Frankfurt that he's staying there. And, and you know, between him and sort of Minamino and uh, and Mitomo, who we've seen do really well for Brighton this fall, uh, you know, Tomiyasu in defense, there's some really decent players who are playing good club football in Europe these days. And really, if they were in almost any other group in this tournament, I would think they could surprise someone. But it's just kind of brutal getting both Spain and Germany. So... Sorry, Japan. I don't. I don't think that's happening. That said, Lars, I uh, I I spoke to Maya Yoshida at the weekend and asked him, given the fact that Jamal Musiala had just ploughed through him and Schalke for, I mean, that that doesn't make Schalke particularly special because Musiala's done that every week. And I asked him, are you looking forward to playing Jamal Musiala with Japan? And his answer was, yes. You. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, are you, uh, <laughs> so I think there's confidence. Um, can I ask John about Costa Rica? Uh, once again, yeah. this is, you know, uh, I presume, you know, before you read these extensive reviews, perhaps my knowledge is, is Brian, is it Brian Ruiz? Well, is Brian he, Ruiz yeah. is in the squad, Max. Stop yeah, so you're correct. He must, be, he must be a thousand years old. He's 37, yeah. Um, now, I was reading that the coach would pick 77 players in qualifying. And still ended up with Brian Ruiz and Joel Campbell in the squad really? and Kayla Navas. Um, I I think uh, from what I could gather, um, Costa Rica perhaps have the same problems of the rest of the teams in this group is that striking is a problem for them. But what can we expect from Costa Rica? Well, they've always proved themselves when they've been in the, the, in the World Cup, a fairly wily opposition. Um, and uh, yeah, 
Um, and I suppose it's an old joke, but years ago, when someone asked a colleague of mine about Costa Rica ahead of the 2010 World Cup, his response was, well, I'm, I'm not sure Paolo Wanchop is still playing. And that's, unfortunately, how a lot of people will be looking at it. But I think this is a decent team. Can they go as far as the was it quarterfinals they reached back in 2014, didn't they? Yeah, they were done by um, Louis van Gaal's goalkeeping trick. The Netherlands, wasn't they? it? Uh, ah, was that the uh, yeah that was the Tim Cruel the Tim yeah. Cruel moment was against Costa yeah Brian Lincoln. Ruiz was still in his twenties back then and stop uh, it yeah preparing for this World Cup we've interviewed the the, the Costa Rica manager um, and and he's he's obviously a, a fascinating case Luis Fernando Suarez who who's going into the World Cup with his third different national team having having been there before um, twice starting in in Germany in two thousand and six and of course then he took Honduras to the to the last. Uh, the one in Brazil, will it have been, or was it even the last one? He kind of took over at a time when they were in big trouble. They won six of the last seven games. So there, were, there was a, a, a massive, massive improvement. And I think part of that was about these older players and about embracing that. And, and, and this, he talks a lot about this idea of listening to players. It's, it's a myth that you, you've got to impose. You've got to listen and kind of take them on board. And this sort of obsession that drove them and they then had to go through the playoffs anyway to get there. But the, the kind of the obsession that drove them. And, and he was very, he was quite interesting on exactly this idea that he's got this whole generation of young players who are not quite ready. And a whole generation of very old players who should be finished, but have, have got another tournament in them. And, and I think he, you know, obviously he knows how difficult the group is. But, but I think we'll see a, a, a team that's really quite defensive, a team that accepts that they won't have the ball, certainly against Spain, maybe slightly less so against Germany, but I think against them as well. And so there's a bit of me listening to him at least, that finds him absolutely convincing uh, on every level. And at the very least, there's clearly an idea now running through the team and, and a kind of a collective spirit. And they've been able to work, not with all of their players, but with a significant number of their players way before the World Cup. It's not like most teams that are taking their players now as the league's finished because those who've been in the Costa Rican league have been able to join up earlier. So there's a, there's a degree of preparation which may be beneficial for them. All right, Archie Sid, you can go away. Thanks for your time. We'll catch up with you during the tournament, of course. Thanks. Cheerio. Although, Max. Cheers, lads. Breaking news, Gary Cahill has just announced his retirement. Wow. Oh, no. Wow. Okay. Got to re-record the that. The impact of the World <laughs> Cup. Yeah, a special pod on Gary Cahill's retirement. Uh, we'll do that. Uh, and we'll look ahead to Group F in just a second. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com ACAST. Uh, welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Week. We've got a live show tonight. 
Ah, uh, Lars, exciting to see you there. Um, if you are anywhere on earth, you can watch us by uh, on the live stream, theguardian.com slash Guardian Live. Me, Barry, Lars, Ellis, some special guests as well. Some of your favourite panellists may be rocking up to say hello. Who knows? Uh, anyway, uh, theguardian.com slash Guardian Live. Group F then. Belgium, Canada, Morocco and Croatia. Um, Roberto Martinez is still the Belgian manager. Um, John, their, their defence is... Is it still, I mean, tell me it's, you know, Vertonghen, Alderweireld and, you know, it's sometimes it's Jason Denier, sometimes it's Thomas Vermaelen, you know, can they change it? Toby Alderweireld is still there, Jan Vertonghen, vice-captain. Um, but we also have this new Premier League force, of course, in Wout Feiss, who in the last month, you'd probably say has been, if not the best defender in, in, in the Premier League, then the... the uh, Breakout defender. Now, um, I also believe, in, and, and uh, Lars will be able to correct me, he always does, uh, but I believe that Spanish Bob, as we used to know him, uh, Roberto Martinez, um, is also the director of football for the uh, Belgian Football Association. But I think this is going to be his last tournament. Is that That's the word at the moment. But I heard him speaking quite recently about how, actually, as we all look at... Um, Belgium is having two world-class players, the goalkeeper, Thibaut Courtois. Now, I know uh, Courtois himself thinks that such accolades were delivered to him rather belatedly, but we've got to say he's a world-class goalkeeper. Uh, and Kevin De Bruyne, of course, uh, who is the Premier League's prime creative player, you'd have to say. But he said that he thought that if he can get Eden Hazard fit and firing, then he could possibly be Belgium's most important player. Um, that would be... A quite a surprising outcome from what I've seen of Hazard, which is very little because he doesn't play very often. Um, Belgium, it feels like they've hit the end of the road uh, in terms of the, that that well of talent they've had. There they are still bringing players through Balfeis, uh, but a combination of an old defence and Roberto Martinez coaching that defence doesn't give me great confidence in them. Lars. I do think with Roberto Martinez, I mean, if only if scientists could just start working on how you can turn like positive energy into like actual kinetic energy, like you could convert positivity <laughs> into an actual power source, then really all our woes would be over, I think, in terms of energy policy, or whatever. You just have to hook Roberto Martinez into a battery and we could just power several countries. I mean, it'd be completely fine. Well, so, maybe, I mean, maybe maybe Gianni Infantino, who uh, is a uh, is now this peace envoy, uh, I notice. Uh, perhaps he can engage Roberto Martinez when he steps down from the Belgium job in that role as the positivity vibes man for FIFA and, of course, the, the globe itself. Have we just tried plugging him into a socket? That's all I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. Just try to, try to plug him in and, and see what happens. Just as an experiment. I don't know. Uh, I Listen... I feel almost like weirdly defensive about the Belgium squad because I hear a lot of this. Maybe I spend too much time on social media where people say silly things, but like all about how, oh, the, the golden generation, it's been such a failure, you know, it's been a disaster. It's been really bad. They're still a pretty small country. Uh, and uh, in, in World Cup 2018, they lost to the eventual winners, France, of a goal on a set piece. Euro 2020, they lost to the eventual winner, Italy, you know, with one goal again. Like tournament football is hard. That kind of stuff happens. They they had yeah. an incredible. They're a small country uh, that had an incredible generation of players. 
who got far in these tournaments but came up against uh, eventually the best teams in those tournaments and had to go home. I mean, that's that's what happens. I think they've done pretty well all in all. But, but I do concur that it's, uh, it's most likely a, a step too far. Obviously, Kevin De Bruyne is still amazing and, and, and is, for me, the best player in the Premier League. But it's stuff like not just Hazard losing his way completely, regardless of what Happy Roberto says, and and also like Romelu Lukaku having a terrible eighteen months. I mean, the timing is just not ideal uh, in that regard. And there are some players coming, you know, some options. You know, Charles de Quetelera I like a lot. We'll see if he gets a lot of uh, game time. You know, Tielemans have have recently discovered the volley as a thing. Like he's just unstoppable. Maybe they should just lift it up to him all the time. I don't know, but. I just think there are weaknesses here that uh, you'd expect them to get out of the group without too much trouble, but you also think when they come up against one of the major powers, I, I don't think the opponents would be would be quaking too much in their uh, in their boots if they're wearing boots um, in Qatar. It's very hot. Yeah, and one of the things, and this is maybe a, a part of Martinez trusting those players, is that Leandro Trossard, who has been one of the best players in the Premier League this season. Isn't necessarily a starter. I think that that's true. When you know, that's a very good player, and the player in front of him is Hazard. You know, only thirty-one. Hazard. Oh right. Um, it's weird Eden Hazard, isn't it? Because he was so brilliant. It's amazing. And then I suppose it happens to footballers. You know, they can be good and then not so good. Uh, let's talk about Canada because it's their second tournament ever. Um, first one since nineteen eighty-six. They've got these, you know, there's so much enthusiasm about them, you know, winning that qualification group uh, with Alfonso Davies, clearly an absolutely stunning footballer, Jonathan David as well. And the group doesn't look, I mean, the group, it's not easy, Lars, but it's not like getting Germany and Spain, is it? No, it's true. Um, Belgium and Croatia are favourites, you'd have to say that, but they're both teams that have vulnerabilities. So if they trip up against you or against Morocco or against each other, then there could be openings there. Uh, and you're right, this isn't just, when we talk about Canada, it's not just like a underdog story of like uh, uh, random players who, who play in the, 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 the big forests on their own. Like There's some really proper players here. Uh, of the ones you mentioned, but also like uh, Tajon Buchanan from from Club Rouge has done a good job for them. Uh, they've got uh, Stephen Eustachio, I believe is the pronunciation. I apologize. He's he's a very tidy midfielder, plays for Porto. And uh, bringing my Nordic bias, I'm delighted to see Atiba Hutchinson is still knocking around. Uh, played uh, up in up in the uh, up in Scandinavia in the early 2000s. Still in the squad, still in the midfield here at the age of 39, uh, which is tremendous. No, I, I think they've got nothing to fear here. Like, no one expects anything of them. And they've got none of the opponents are teams that will, like, obviously blow them away and are completely undefeatable. So just go out there and have fun. One thing I was reading that the, the coach, John Herdman, is uh, after his parents' acrimonious divorce, he read Self-Reliance by Ralph Waldo Emerson which taught him to follow his own path. So he seems like a, you know, I think he's, he's travelled around to, to, to get there, to be where he is. Um, he think he could be an interesting guy. Um, now, when I think of Canada in the World Cup, the first World Cup I would call is the 1986 World Cup. And I don't know if you are of a sufficient vintage, Max. Do you remember Canada? Yes. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 do you know what? I remember 1986. I remember the sticker book. That's as far as I remember about anything that Canada did. Uh, but I was looking at the players in that team 
uh, and to see who I recalled. Um, Terry Moore was one I recalled, played for Glen Torum. Frank Yallop? Frank, yeah, Frank Yallop was not in that squad, no, no. Wow. Uh, but I was also looking at the, the, some of the teams that these players played in, and I think this is the sort of dying embers of the North American Soccer League. And uh, forgive, right. forgive us, North American listeners, but uh, the striker, the number nine in fact, of the squad played Branco Sagotta, played for the San Diego Soccers, spelt with a K, yeah. Ah, oh, lovely. And uh, the third reserve goalkeeper, Paul Dolan, uh, who was just 20 uh, in 1986, played for the legendary, now departed, Edmonton Brickmen. Now they sound oh, great, the don't they? Brickmen. Yeah, bring them back. Yeah. Bring back the Brickmen. Now, I don't, nice. I, I don't want to patronise Canada, but yeah, good luck. I think they might need it, but great to see them there. Uh, I've always thought of Canada as a big country with a small town friendly mentality. I think they'll bring a lot to the tournament. Yeah, and just since we mentioned uh, the. Rolf Erdo Emerson enthusiast John Herdman, who is their manager. I mean, people might not be aware. I mean, he's born in Durham. He's English yeah. and born in Durham and uh, used to coach the New Zealand women's team and then the Canadian women's team before moving on to the Canadian men's team. He's done an absolutely unbelievable job with them. And uh, so certainly one, I mean, for, for English people out there, should should be your second team, no? Mm. Um, Croatia. They've still got the old... Uh, stages, you know, Modric, Brozovic, Kovacic have over 300 caps between them. Um, I, you know, I feel like I should just say, are they tired? Look, Modric <laughs> is such a wonderful. Listen, Modric is such a wonderful footballer, Lars, isn't he? That that they can do anything with him. I managed to not do my Jason Denier joke earlier. I think you can do the. You can you can manage to stay away from the. I should hang it up. I should retire it. You know. Yeah, yeah. I, I retired the Denier joke. He didn't make the squad, so I can't I can't do it again. Um, listen, Croatia. If you look at the squad, obviously they're not quite as strong as they were a couple of years ago. But again, this is a country with like four million people. It's incredible the number of amazing footballers they turn out. It is truly remarkable. And if you look at the team they're bringing in the squad they've got, like that midfield is still <laughs> tremendous because Luka Modric is somehow still, uh, at the age of 37, enormously good. A and the supporting cast around him with Marcelo Brozovic, who's a terrific player, and Kovacic, who I think is slightly underrated, actually. I agree with the, that. The, yeah. the, the, the three of them as just a nucleus in midfield is really good. Like That's, that's one of the better midfielders, midfields in the, in the tournament, getting slightly carried away. But there aren't actually many central midfields in the tournament I'd had over those three. So so you have that as a sort of nucleus to build around. You have a young Josko Guardiol in defense who's kind of come through, who's a super exciting sort of young defender for Leipzig, who all the big clubs in the world want to sign. Uh, you know, you've got some, uh, Lovre Myers had a real breakthrough for Rennes, is kind of adding something if he gets to play. You know, Perisic is still around. Good players here. I mean, the... As always, sort of since Mandzukic kind of left the stage, they don't have an obvious sort of number nine up front. I mean, I would expect Kramaric to play. He's more of a sort of poachy, second stripery type guy. Um, maybe Petkovic plays. He's kind of a strange player, but uh, the, the lack of sort of, again, we say it again, the lack of an obvious number nine up front is, is uh, I think, a little bit of a negative. But but no, there, there are a lot of good players in the squad and they've got a really strong spirit uh, they're a resilient bunch. Again, I have them bracketed in my head as sort of will progress from the groups and will be awkward to, to meet. I wouldn't expect them to go very far, but I don't think anyone would necessarily like to play against them. Croatia strike me as one of those teams of which are quite a few in this World Cup where 
they have a strong midfield and that their best players are in midfield, uh, struggling for strikers. And one of the things about this World Cup would appear to be that if there is a guy that can score a lot of goals as a striker, their team's got a, a, a hope of going pretty far. But uh, it comes to Modric, doesn't it? Uh, and he would be the only the third outfield player to play in five World Cups after. And do you know the answer to this question? Oh, um, that's a good question. One of them is one of them's very, very famous. Uh, and the other one is was briefly very famous, but played for a very big club. Is it Messi's fifth one? Messi's, we've also joined them, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Not Cristiano? No. Um, think, okay. think, think 90s famous. Liam Gallagher is the first thing that hits me. Um, who's played Chris in five Evans, World no. Cups? Is, is it uh, Sir no. Stephen Redgrave? Has he done it? <laughs> well, he didn't know that's five Olympics. No, but, uh, he did, yeah. yeah. Go on then, um, tell us. Lothar Mateus. Of course it is, Lothar Mateus. I think he's pretty famous, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, another one is uh, Rafael Marquez from Mexico. Ah, yes. Definitely. He was, a big, he was a big star. He was. And then, and then was one of those players that kept turning up at World Cups. And you're like, is that Rafa? Oh, yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. It's like Brian Ruiz. He's right, the Brian Ruiz, do... yes. Two minutes on Morocco, please, Lars. Uh, kind of a fascinating team in that uh, not that many of them were, were born in Morocco. I don't know if you guys have seen this, but there's someone someone put together. I wish I could credit uh, the person, but I don't exactly know who, who it was. Someone put together a sort of a a list of all the players in the World Cup uh, from the various teams who were born outside of their home country. And and Morocco have the most. It's a very, um, uh, it's, it's a very sort of uh, loosely collected bunch of players from the sort of Moroccan diaspora all around Europe. And, and, and they do have some interesting players. I mean, Hakim Ziyech, obviously, we, we know very, very well. Uh, you might, I mean, it's interesting to see a squad that, that has someone like Hakim Ziyech and 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 also Ilias Chair of QPR in there, like very stocky, technical, fun player, and and Ashraf Hakimi at right wing back. You know that there's various good players. I I do wonder a little bit. I mean, what the team cohesion is going to be? There, there there's a lot of players who are born in in different countries here. How well they know each other, and also the fact that they 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 sacked the coach uh, Valid Haliodzic, the very experienced Bosnian coach who looks a bit like a Bond villain. Uh, they, they 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 sacked him after qualifying them. Uh, partially because he didn't get on with Ziyech. <laughs> and then they've brought in uh, uh, Valid Regragu. I apologize for butchering that name, um, who's who's won the African Champions League uh, with, with Casablanca, but he's only been there for like two friendlies. So, so that isn't, I think, an ideal way of going into a tournament. Uh, but but there are some good individual players here. And, uh, of course, they've got uh, Sid's big favorite, uh, Yasin Bono, in, in goal. Uh, he maybe he'll have a beautiful day. Uh, oh, maybe God, he'll good. maybe he'll come for a cross and then discover that he still hasn't found what he was looking for. That that would be <laughs> that would be unfortunate. Uh, or that he might move in some mysterious ways. It's it's really hard to get <laughs> to get all of I still haven't found what I'm looking for in between missing the cross and the ball going in. It, it just <laughs> feels like. There's not quite enough. You time, know, in times of great there? stress, uh, <laughs> time really slows down, Max. So I think it's still, yeah, you're absolutely I think it's right. possible. Lars should take pride in his punnery there. Yeah, well done. Yeah, and yeah. I, yeah, I was yeah, just yeah. going to say that West Ham fans may get to see a guy that they haven't seen much of, Nayev Aguerd, um, who 
got injured on pre-season. I think he's made a couple of appearances just before the World Cup. And he's going to be one of those players that a club fans watch and think, oh yeah, he plays for us. Which I think there could be a few of those during this World Cup. And, and also, I mean, Sofian Buffal is in there, who's one of the most frustrating players on yeah. the planet. Because he is a genuinely, like technically brilliant and, and can dribble like five people and, and then he can also be the worst player you've ever seen I mean he, he can be all of those things and uh, well hopefully we'll see the good version of him if he gets on the field um, alright uh, thanks chaps appreciate your time as always anytime sir thanks for having me uh, Guardian Football Weekly produced by Silas Gray with Joel Grove executive producer Max Sarnas and coming up in part three uh, third of our four specials in the lead up to the World Cup focusing today on migrant workers in Qatar Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Uh, it's another one of our specials. This time we're focusing on migrant workers. Since 2010, a lot has been written about their plight. Thousands of men and women responsible for building the entire infrastructure that allowed this tournament to happen uh, next week. Today we'll cover the conditions of their work and where they live, their pay, their unions or lack of unions, compensation, and of course the disputed number of people who've lost their lives since Qatar won the right to host this tournament. On the panel today, Barry Glendenning is with us. Oh yeah, Philippe Claire is here. Hello, Max. Uh, Nick McGeehan, uh, writer and researcher at Fair Square. Hey, Nick. Hi, Max. And Felix Jenkins, head of priority campaigns and individuals at risk at Amnesty UK. Hi, Felix. Morning, all. First of all, Nick, look, we've spoken to you before, but it was a while ago. A lot of people will know your work. Could you just explain who Fairsquare are and, and sort of how long you've been working in, in this area? Yeah, we set up Fairsquare in, in 2018. Um, myself and James Lynch, we both come out of Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, where we'd worked on Qatar and migrant worker rights for, for about five years. So we've continued to work on it at Fairsquare, albeit in a, in a smaller organisation. Um, and I guess I've been working on migrant worker rights since about since about 2002, really, uh, when I lived in, in Abu Dhabi for a four-year spell. So, um, yeah, that's that's who we are. And Felix, Amnesty, I think a lot of people look to Amnesty on this subject. You know, Amnesty's reports are quoted a, a lot. Where do you see your role in, in the World Cup in Qatar? And, and what is Amnesty's position on the World Cup? Yeah, so we've been, obviously, we're an independent human rights organisation, so our role and our remit really is to investigate human rights abuses wherever they're taking place uh, around the world and obviously in the run-up to Qatar and the and the you know the, this World Cup there have been a sort of catalogue of, of rights violations that Amnesty has documented so we've been able to go out and visit um, in the region to, to take trips to Qatar to find out what's happening on the ground to speak to workers etc um, and our role really is to continue to provide um, independent evidence of the situation for human rights in the country. Can we talk about the number of migrant workers that have died in this period? The Guardian reported in February 2021 that more than 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh and Sri Lanka had died in Qatar since it won the right to host the World Cup 10 years ago, not specifically building stadia. The government said its accidents record showed that between 2014 and 2020, there were 37 deaths among labourers at World Cup stadium construction sites, only three of which were work-related. Will we, I mean, it's such a massive, it's such a massive difference, Nick. Will we ever know? Yeah, well, in a sense, we do know, right? There's a lot of confusion around this, and the confusion is caused by the Qatari authorities, right? So here's the data, right? There have been 15,021 non-Qatari deaths in a 10-year period. That's Qatari government data. 
63% of those were Asian and 87% of those were men. Those are facts. Now, we don't know any more than that because the categories sit on all the data. Now, a very troubling you know, statistic within that is about 50 to 70% of those deaths are unexplained. And you set that in the context of these really severe risks to health, whether it's heat and humidity or pollution, overwork, stress, inability to access hospitals, all of that stuff. So that's the data, right? So what you've had in this 6,500 figure versus the three figure is a, is a debate that's based on numbers. The three number from the Catholic authorities is just plain misinformation that can be refuted by their own reports, which you can find online. So their own data says that's nonsense. The, the 6,500 figure, you know, is consistent with what their own data shows. So I guess the question has to come back, well, how, how many hundred deaths or how many thousand deaths do people think it's acceptable before they will be outraged? You know, there has been gross negligence on a grand scale by the Catholic authorities on this issue. There is a mountain of evidence to, to demonstrate and to prove that. So the, the debate around, you know, how many deaths sort of, it, it sort of takes attention away from that negligence. Uh, I should add, Nick, that that figure of three deaths is the figure that has been taken and quoted by Mr. Gianni Infantino, president of FIFA. Yeah, exactly. And, and he, did so, he did so in front of uh, the European Parliament. When it comes to the building of World Cup stadiums, it's not, you know, we, we are investigating all these matters with external entities. It's actually three persons who died. Three. Three is three too many, but it's three. So, so yeah, it's a category PR line. It's because they are furious about this 6,500 figure. But the 6,500 figure is rooted in fact and evidence. You know, people might not like the fact that it was misinterpreted by some people as they, saying 6,500 people died on stadiums, which is not true. But Qatar needed a lot more than stadiums. And FIFA and Qatar knew that. They needed an airport. They needed a metro. They needed a deep seaport. They needed roads. They needed sewage. They needed electricity. They built an entirely new city you know, to make this World Cup possible. So, so the, the idea that we can just look at this 30,000 people who are working in stadiums when a million people were brought in to make the World Cup possible, it's nonsense. It might sound trite to say it as well, but when you think of 6,500, you know, when you hear numbers like that, you, you kind of don't really think about them as people anymore and like people with families and, and all those kind of things. That, and that is the most important part of this, isn't it? This is something that Nick was touching on, but when also you have... So many thousands of unexplained deaths that have taken place in Qatar. Often these are individuals whose families are you know, back in the countries that they've migrated from to seek work elsewhere. Um, and when those, when those deaths are happening, which remain sort of unexplained, that, that gives absolutely no closure to families and loved ones who are sort of hold, you know, wait, waiting for the call to come that never does. That, yeah, sorry, your, you know, your husband, your brother has died and we can't tell you why and we're not going to send you any compensation. So there's no, there's no remedy at the moment. There's no, there's no, there's no closure for those families. And that's something that Amnesty and others have been calling, you know, for FIFA and the Qatari authorities to make right, is at least, you know, now that we have this, th these definitely large numbers of deaths. And also, it's not just the deaths, it's also the extreme violations of human rights going across the board. So denial of wages, you know, people that have been um, held in kind of coercive conditions, not being able to leave their jobs, all sorts of sort of abuses up and down the labour system. We think that FIFA and the Qataris have a responsibility now to make that right and to establish this compensation fund. So... You know, it's, it's completely right to talk about the deaths, and that's a that's a key part of this story. But there's also the much wider sort of abuse, the systematic abuse of, of human rights that we've seen that we think should be compensated. We're going to play testimonies that we've got from migrant workers uh, in Qatar um, or who used to work in Qatar. We obviously didn't want 
to use their real voices because we didn't want any recriminations. So uh, the one you're about to hear and all the other ones have been voiced by actors. I like football, but can't talk about the World Cup in Qatar. I'm a security guard at Al Janoub Stadium, but I have never been inside. Work is okay, not much hard, but salary not so good. I sent home. I care my family. This problem of hernia, six, seven months ago, it's like a big ball. Doctor in Hamad Hospital give me some medicine, but no move. I had surgery. Doctor gives me 10 days leave. I have to do exercise, that's why I am outside. Move little, little, and it will become better. I was born in Ghazipur, near the Dhaka. Three years ago, I have not been. Qatar is better than our country, than our Asia. I have kids, two, one son, one daughter. We communicate on video call. They do well in school. I miss my family, my cousins, and near people. I just want to raise one one case. I mean, there, there is one case where there has been investigation and, and probably compensation, and that was the family of Zach Cox. You know, Zach Cox was a guy who died in the construction of the Qatar World Cup. He's one of the three. You know, I met I met his family a long time ago in London and sat down with them and chatted to them, and and they were looking for answers. You know, they they were just you know as anyone who's lost anyone, particularly at a long a young age. They were utterly bereft and, and grieving, and they just wanted to know how Zach had died and, and who was responsible um, and to get some sort of closure. Now, in Zach's case, the Catharys hired uh, a retired former UK judge to look into the case. Spent a lot of money on Zach's case. Um, we don't exactly know what's happened with it, um, but it seems to have come to some sort of resolution. Why, why, is, why did Zach get that attention? And why did all these other people not? get any attention like that. I mean, there's a simple answer to that. It's because Zach was white and a Westerner. But like his family's grief isn't any, you know, more important or, or less valid than, than the grief of all these other families who got phone calls from the guy's colleagues. You know, it wasn't even that the government would take the time to call. So there is that issue that comes into the mix. And that does that does point at one of the really key problems here and what we're dealing here with is is, is a system that is deeply discriminatory towards poor brown people. Um, and that's what's happening in Qatar, unfortunately. And actually, John McManus made an interesting point in a previous pod we've done. He's written a book on Qatar. He lived in Qatar. Is that, Felix, this is, you know, this is part of a, you know, Qatar is not a country just in a vacuum. It's part of a wider issue where, you know, these migrant workers, they are going to Qatar, right? That is, why is that? Is that the least worst option for them? Are they lied to? Or is this actually an opportunity for them given where they come from? I suppose on paper it's potentially an opportunity, but I think the reality of going and actually getting a job in Qatar and working to do to deliver something like a World Cup stadium is completely removed from the, the sort of the idea that people are sold. You know, we, we know that all the way through since 2010 and, and, on, and still ongoing, people are being forced to pay um, illegal recruitment fees between 1,000 and 3,000 US dollars that they can ill afford, that they then have to kind of work off, which is a classic coercive um, manoeuvre enforced labour. And then the situation that people find themselves in are just extremely poor. So, you know, this isn't, this isn't unique to Qatar. This isn't unique to the Middle East. 
you know, the idea of kind of a dream job in a different part of the world is something that happens, you know, that's a, that pull is, you know, is, is something that we can see, in, you know, across Europe, in the United States, um, migrant workers coming from, from Mexico and other places and labour exploitation. And that's the fact, that's the fact. We have extremely, people coming from extremely poor places who are extremely susceptible to um, exploitation. Um, like Nick talked about, you know, these are often black and brown people coming from sub-Saharan Africa or Southern Asia, um, and they are they're treated with complete derision by the Qatari authorities um, in this sort of two tier labour system. Because we think about Qatar and you know, people from the UK might think about Qatar or other countries in the Middle East as kind of a place to go and make your fortune, go and work almost tax free for a few years, make an enormous amount of cash, come back to, you know, come back to the UK, take a banking job or whatever. Um, whereas for these workers, um, it is it's a completely you know, it's like night and day in terms of the way that they're treated. Another thing I wanted to to put across is there's so many things, but I I've heard also, and I think they these are founded in grounded in reality. The fact that, that that another problem which is caused by the World Cup is because of the influx of visitors. At the moment, Qatar is actually kicking out workers to make space, and that these people once they've been kicked out, they will not be able to come back. Qatar can't clear the country of migrant workers. The country is entirely dependent on low-paid migrant labour. I mean, it would it would literally cease to function if they sent home all, all the workers. Um, you know, it may be that lots of construction projects are finishing, you know, as the World Cup ends. That's that's possibly true. Um, it may be that they do want to minimise the number of workers there. Uh, that's also true. And and I guess what, what, what it points to is the fact that these workers are inherently deportable. Right. They can be deported at a moment's notice, and, and that is the root of their vulnerability. Deportation for them means going back to unpaid recruitment fees, you know, and, and plunging a family into further poverty, poverty potentially. Um, so, yeah, there is evidence that that's happening, and it just it's just another sign of how of the complete control that Qatar and Qatar employers have over this low-paid workforce. Felix, can I ask, do you, in your experience, do the powers that be in Qatar care about people raising these issues, people like us, other journalists, um, or is it just noise? They've, they've already won. They've got the World Cup. It will be a great TV spectacle. People will enjoy the football. Do, do, do they, are they bothered about people like us flagging these things up? Well, I think there, there is, there's definitely an element where they, there, there is an element of botheredness, I'd say. So the, you know, the, Qatar, obviously, you know, why did they want, why did they want the World Cup in the first place, right? So it's, that's a question you have to ask ourselves. And Amnesty and, and um, Nick's organisation have done a lot of work on sports washing. So the ability to kind of use sport to create massive, positive um, international headlines about a country that has a, you know, a pretty dodgy human rights record or, or just isn't particularly well known, but it's kind of a wash with cash. We're seeing Saudi do it, UAE are doing it. They, they, you know, UAE set out the blueprint in some in some senses. Um, so Qatar obviously wanted to create a big positive PR moment around it as a state, and they see the World Cup as a huge opportunity to do that. These major um, sporting events have have long been a kind of bauble for autocratic or dictatorial regimes to. Came from their PR tree, we saw, you know, the, the Beijing Olympics, we've seen the World Cup go to Russia. So these are countries that want to, they want these things because it creates a, you know, international credibility um, and it can create positive PR around otherwise, you know, pretty, pretty places that are doing pretty unpleasant things to their population. So the fact that there has been a pretty constant negative stream of publicity about Qatar and this World Cup and the fact that organisations like Amnesty, Fair Square, Human Rights Watch, you know, even some governments, 
national FAs now have been criticising the human rights record and the, the way in which they have totally disregarded the people that have come to help them deliver this World Cup has, you know, that has created a sort of a sewer of negative publicity, which the Qataris cannot be happy about, right? That is definitely something which has got up their nose. I think that um, what has been done already is, uh, is you know, really groundbreaking. Uh, in a very short time, the progress in terms of human rights, of uh, workers' rights in particular, has been, uh, uh, has been incredible and this needs to be recognised. The fact that they have actually brought in some labour reforms has been ultimately something of a success for those of us who are working to, to put pressure on them. Now, even though those labour reforms do not go anywhere near far enough, um, they have, you know, there are some changes on their statute books. Now, again, when the World Cup rolls out of town, whether or not those continue to, to remain on the statute and whether there's any meaningful delivery of them is another is another matter. But the fact that they have actually gone through the process of, of updating some of those things, and listen, Amnesty is also documenting some improvement in condition for some workers, not for all, you know, but some of those who are employed building stadia have seen their conditions improve, absolutely, because you know, so much attention has been paid to the Qataris and, and particularly to things like the building of grounds because you know, that's been probably the most high profile issue. Um, so I think, yes, there has been, they do, they have paid attention. There's been so much pressure put on by so many different um, organisations and different um, political parties around the world, including national FAs and so on. So it has to be said that, yes, there has been, but it's still not gone far enough. And once once the World Cup kicks off, it's almost certain that a lot of this will, you know, will die down and people will be focusing on what's going on on the pitch. And then what happens after the World Cup is completely up for grabs. And Amnesty's work will definitely not be done in continuing to put pressure on the Qataris. But will the world's media still be asking questions in quite the same way? It's much harder to say. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. Yes, it has been an opportunity for those of us who are interested in human rights to raise these issues consistently. Once the World Cup ends, it's going to definitely be a bit of a different story. I am on the seventh year running in Qatar now. In this time, I have been home in Bangladesh two times. I am married, my wife waits at home, but we have no children, not yet. This is a pop-up spreader, a cylinder in the soil. Then come water to here. It's to keep the grass green. It's a big pipe under here, under the grass, so the water comes all the way up to here. A flood. It's like a shower for the water, on the grass. We keep it working. This is Mia Park. It's around the Islamic Museum. People come here, walk and look around this, look at Doha skyline. Children on the playground, tourists take pictures. Same company, many, many countries. India, Pakistan, Bangladesh, Sri Lanka, Masri. That's Egypt. It's only this garden work. We come to Qatar on a farmer's visa, a kind of work visa. I like football very much. Cricket too. Cricket is number one in Bangladesh. I play cricket too, all the time, in Bangladesh. Not here, in Qatar. Here it is work until it's dark. So now it's seven years with not so much cricket. We have company come to us. Then we enlist. Then we take contract, we sign it. Afterwards, we work here. 
I have basic salary, 1,000 rials, and 300 for food. I send money to Bangladesh, at least 500 each month, maybe more. That's why I'm here. For the money, no other. You say fans aren't responsible for the World Cup beating Qatar. In the same way, say, fans of Newcastle and Manchester City aren't responsible for who owns their clubs. But whenever anyone, a journalist, a football journalist, say like Miguel Delaney or Tariq Panja or Adam Crafton, criticise those ownership regimes, the fans go, oh, but you'll be going to Qatar, won't you? And they all seem to think that any journalist who gets goes to Qatar, gets put up in a five-star hotel by FIFA and is lavished with freebies, which is not the case. But am I right in thinking, Felix and, and Nick, you, you want journalists to go and cover the World Cup. So it's not the gotcha that these fans think it is to, to call them out for going to Qatar. You know, the role of journalists in calling these issues to attention and actually putting tough questions to the Qatari authorities, if possible, you know, is a, is a hugely important role that um, that they can play in shedding a light and continuing to, to talk about the human rights violations. I mean, one of the one of the sort of great moments um, recently uh, sort of in this area was um, Dan Rowan being in, Dan Rowan, the BBC sports um, editor, being in uh, Saudi for the first Anthony Joshua fight and putting very specific questions about human rights violations to the Saudi sports minister who was, um, who was sort of delivering that first fight. And, um, you know, in, in Saudi Arabia, if you ask that kind of question publicly um, and you aren't Dan Rowan, you're going to end up with 20 years in prison and a thousand lashes. So it, you know, we have, you know, Western journalists who are going out to cover Qatar have an ability to, to criticise and call the authorities to account. Um, in a way that ordinary Qataris have absolutely no ability to do. And obviously we know that a lot of journalists are going to go and they're just going to talk about the football. And that's obviously, you know, that's also fine. Um, but there will be those that go and they, and, you know, and they raise the human rights concerns and, they, and they, they raise the voices and they talk about the stories of the migrant workers who have had their, you know, lost their lives in, in delivering the World Cup. And actually, we, we, look, we've talked about fans, we've talked about um, journalists, we haven't talked about players and managers and coaches. Do they have a role here, Nick? Well, I mean, they certainly have a lot of influence if they choose to use it. You know, you've seen Craig Foster be very outspoken, um, really impressive as always. Tim Sparv, the former captain of Finland, has, has been outspoken. Various people in um, Scandinavia players have been have been outspoken. Before players had won these rights, their careers in Australia were characterised by the absence of respect and dignity. It is for these reasons we must speak about the situation in Qatar. So yeah, I mean, I, I would say it's not it's not on them. Ultimately, and I get a bit uncomfortable when people use Qatar, for example, to have a pop at you know some of England's young, very young, impressive players and the stances they've taken on, taken on Black Lives Matter and racial discrimination. So that that makes me a little bit uncomfortable. It's the people above them that need to be taking responsibility. It's the Football Association, it's FIFA, right? These are the guys who control the money and who control the game and govern the game. So um, it's really on them. They need to take a stand. They're the ones profiting from it too. You know, they'll make huge amounts of money from this. We shouldn't fall in the trap of presenting Qatar as being monolithic, that there are genuinely elements within Qatari society which would welcome change. 
uh, and that it is a dictatorship, it is a police state, it's very difficult for them to have their voices heard. But even within the Supreme Committee, and I'm speaking from experience here, there are people who are frustrated at the slowness of change and who are sincere in their desire to see things get better for migrant workers, but also for other parts of the population. And, and I think we need to say that because otherwise we're just painting everybody with the same brush. And I think we're doing our criticism a disservice, but not nuanced enough. That's one thing I would say. And actually, Philippe, once again, you know, we are doing a podcast where in our dream world, our panel would be, you know, all Qataris or all migrant workers or a mixture of the two. But it is very hard to get anybody to speak on the record about this kind of thing. Absolutely, which is one of the reasons we've, you know, we're using uh, testimonies which were picked by, you know, our friends at Uzibar in, in Qatar. In the, and so you can hear the voices of these people. But uh, if you look at the issue that, you know, that Yosimar has put out, you will see that every single one of the people who spoke to them has got their face either pixeled or hiding their face with their hands because they will get in serious, serious trouble indeed if it was found out that they actually just told their own story in their own words. So I know there's always this problem as like portraying what we're doing as the white saviors coming in and telling people how to, to run their thing. Uh, in fact, uh, we're just mere vessels for, in this particular case, I think, um, understanding, but also vessels of people's, the voices of people whose voice is actually being silenced where they are suffering. I was working outside at a building site and I fell two floors down. My left leg fractured six months ago. No job, no money. A year I sent home. 20,000 taka, 6,000 total, to parents outside Dhaka. I have no children, no wife, no more sending, no money now. No help from Qatar government. Company, construction company, <laughs> no help. No money from company. No health card. People help me. They give me something for medical help. In one month, I hope to go home. For good. Qatar, no good. Thank you so much for coming on, guys. Really appreciate it. Um, you know, I know our listeners care about this stuff. And like, we really want to get the balance right between covering the football and enjoying the football and actually talking about things that matter far more. So, Felix, thank you, mate. Yeah, no problem. Thank you. Thank you, Nick. Thanks, guys. Yeah, thanks for covering it. It's uh, very good to get this coverage. It'll be very helpful. Uh, Baz, cheers. Thanks, Max. And Philippe, as always, thank you, mate. Thank you. Again, we have some statements from FIFA, the Supreme Committee, and the Qatari government. Um, uh, as I've said before, it's worth listening to all of them um, for balance. When we reached out to the Qatari government with some of the allegations in this episode, a spokesperson told us they were extremely disappointed by our decision to deliberately exclude Qatari and Arab voices and that the assumption that the safety of any person testifying about their experience in Qatar would be at risk is an unfounded and baseless claim that goes against Qatar's core principles of dialogue and engagement as the best means to effect change. They said many of the allegations put forward are categorically false and paint an inaccurate picture of the reality in Qatar. They told us that the state of Qatar has taken wide-ranging actions to create safe conditions for over one and a half million workers in our country. 
They told us that only 20% of expatriates in Qatar are employed as labourers on construction sites. The remaining 80% include teachers, doctors, taxi drivers and a range of other roles that support Qatar's economy. In relation to migrant worker deaths, they told us that the figures previously published by The Guardian take the number of all deaths in the country over a 10-year period and label the cause of death as World Cup related. This is not true and neglects all other causes of death, including illness, old age, traffic accidents, etc. They said there has been a steady decline in mortality rates due to reforms they've introduced over the last two decades, which have, in the words of the International Labour Organization, yielded benefits for workers, employers and the economy more broadly. They told us that Qatar has taken steps to ensure the protection of workers in every step of the process of their employment, including recruitment. In terms of worker welfare, a government spokesperson said, in order to ensure their well-being and fair treatment, we established the Workers Support and Insurance Fund in 2018, which has proven itself to be effective in providing compensation for workers who have unfortunately been injured or passed away because of a work-related incident, or if workers have not received their salaries due to their employer being unable to pay. They told us that $350 million US million has been paid out this year through the fund. They also said we encourage every worker who believes they have been wronged or their rights violated to come forward and lodge complaints anonymously via online services or in person by visiting the Labour Department. A statement on behalf of the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy said that since construction began in 2014, their commitment to ensuring the health, safety and dignity of all workers employed on our projects has remained steadfast. It said that their efforts have resulted in significant improvements and that their health and safety standards are on a par with, if not better than, many construction projects in Europe and North America. A fact they say that the Global Trade Union Building and Woodworkers International recognises and have publicly attested to. Despite this commitment to standards, the statement says it is unfortunately the case that, as elsewhere in the world, work-related injuries and deaths still occur on our projects. It goes on to say that unfortunately the Supreme Committee has suffered three work-related fatalities and 37 non-work-related deaths, something they say they have been transparent about from the outset. A FIFA spokesperson said measures to safeguard the health and well-being of FIFA World Cup workers has been an important priority of the worker-related due diligence system. They went on to say this work has also been extended to the service sector, such as in the hotel, transportation, logistics or security industries, and has led to important spillover effects for workers not directly involved in the FIFA World Cup projects. In terms of revenues generated by the World Cup, a spokesperson told us, as a not-for-profit organisation, one of FIFA's core statutory objectives is to promote and grow the game of football globally. They told us that revenues generated by World Cups are redistributed to football around the world, including but not limited to the organisation of other tournaments, investment in global football development programmes and support for the women's game. This part was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer was Max Sanderson. This is The Guardian.